Now we'll especially focus there at the beginning of the reading, from verse 4 onwards, where we are called by the Holy Spirit to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse 6, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to God. Now, I'm sure as we read that passage there together, you noticed the the tone of joy that's coming from Paul as he speaks and as he communicates with the church in Philippi. I'm sure you noticed that family of words there as we read. It makes this epistle itself quite special, um, that he mentions joy and rejoicing, that he mentions thanksgiving and mentions his great appreciation for their love and kindness to him. So in that way, this is a special letter of Paul. He clearly loved all the churches he wrote to. Some of them he began himself. Some were begun without his presence, but he still loved them all in Christ. But this church had a special place in Paul's heart. And as we read it there, you would have seen one of the reasons that was uh, the case. That's only one reason, though. It wasn't only because they showed a practical financial kindness to him. At the beginning of the letter, there are other reasons that he so, if I could put it this way, easily able to rejoice over this church because of the depth of their love for Christ and their desire to grow and so on. But that makes this letter special because the theme of joy begins to come out of this letter. And at this time of year, you're more aware uh, than I am, for in in the UK, we do not have an annual uh, Thanksgiving. But at this time of year, that kind of thing is obviously on people's minds. They focus on it. There are even church services that especially focus on that theme of Thanksgiving at that time of year. And I guess, as someone who's looking on, who's not an American, that the, the theme of Thanksgiving has all kinds of reasons behind it. And a lot of people think that this week they gave a lot of thanks to God and they're thankful for what they have. And there would be a long list of things that would be seen as appropriate for being thankful for. But you'll notice in this letter, Paul is very thankful. And that's instructive for us, the kind of thing we are supposed to be thankful for. You'll notice he explicitly mentions in verse 6 that when dealing with anxiety which is something he was not a stranger to, and in everything, in all things, all kinds of circumstances, to pray with supplication, with asking, with passionate asking. But it must always include, see that little little phrase there, with thanksgiving. And it's easy to miss that and leave it out for your prayers to have a lot of things in them but not have that note of thanksgiving, or at least not have it with the fullness and reality that it ought uh, to have. So Paul himself says that thanksgiving, when it's rightly done before God, is a very important thing, and that if it's lost, if it's removed, or it evaporates out of our minds and hearts and our Christian walk, then there, there will be destructive and corrosive consequences if we don't have it. Um, He says to have thanksgiving, but that word thanksgiving belongs to a family of words in this letter, but especially in this part of the letter. You'll notice he doesn't begin by saying pray and have thanksgiving in it. He begins this exhortation in verse 4 with that great word rejoice or have joy, be joyful in the Lord. And then he repeats it. He doesn't always do that. He's obviously moved. Rejoice, he says. Again, I say to you, rejoice. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. And then he says, do not be anxious. So he, um, he compares and contrasts anxiety with this joy and the family of words that come along with this joy. That's the two things going on in this section of the epistle. 
Now, the Philippians may have reason to be anxious. Um, There is opposition to the gospel where they are, and I think the theme of the letter comes in uh, the first chapter in verse 27 to 30. And if I just sum that up for you, I wouldn't read everything in those verses. Chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear your affairs, that you stand fast. So they're in danger of not doing that. In one spirit, and that's always a problem, division, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not be terrified by your adversaries. That's proof of their perdition, Paul says. So don't be anxious about it. When they oppose, it's proof that there's something wrong inside of them, and it may even be proof of their perdition and their lostness, but to you it is proof of your salvation and that from God. So though Philippi is being blessed, the church there is being blessed, and the Holy Spirit is at work, there is an opposition, as there always is. And Paul, in chapter 4, what we're looking at, gives a kind of antidote to that trouble, to that anxiety, and all the things that come from conflicts like that. And he says, deal with it. Deal with it by first getting your focus right upon the Lord, and rejoice, I say to you, rejoice, pray, make sure you give thanks. And then he says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we have here joy and peace, at least in this passage, and peace, the promise that is given here, that it will guard our hearts, the peace of God. That peace is really just the absence of trouble. That's really what it is. The anxiety he mentions in verse 6, that is to have your mind divided or for it to be in parts, opposing parts and pieces that that are aggravated, that are disturbed and pulled apart in various directions to be full of care and concern in the wrong way. An anxious, divided, distracted, discontent, pained mind. And I'm sure you've all experienced that to one degree or another. That is a problem not only for these Christians, but for us. And that's really the point, isn't it? We're not uh, preaching to the Philippian Christians this morning. This is for us. Anxiety is a permeating problem that will catch us. It will come in frequently, constantly. Anxiety is that pulling apart or division of mind, and its root is unbelief. That's really, if you dig down to the very bottom of it, it's the, the anxiety is growing up because there's some sense in which we have unbelief in our hearts, which is just an imperfect trust in God, or worse, just to be discontent and unbelieving towards God, not to trust what he's saying. That happens to us all at various points. And when that's deep down in the root, anxiety will come out of that unbelief. And when he says that um, you can have joy and peace and when he says you must be thankful then and have thanksgiving the root of that is faith which is simply to trust and believe in God's goodness towards you in Christ to accept it and be sure of it and to be content and to wait upon him when that root is producing the things that come out of it are these family of words that Paul uses. They're all connected. We don't divide all these things. What comes out of a a lively, faithful heart is the joy of Christ, the peace of God, and then the thanksgiving that will come from that. If you're joyful and at peace, then naturally you will want to thank God for that and anxiety is a problem for us, and we always have to be on watch for it. Christ warned his disciples in the upper room about it, that they would have tribulation and trouble. And he, said, he told them the antidote was faith. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. If it were not so, I would have told you. I tell you these things, that your joy may be full. In this world, you will have 
this tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. So anxiety with the root of unbelief that we fall into, but then its opposite is the peace and the joy and the thanksgiving of the Lord, and its root is faith. Before I move into this any further, there's one other fruit hanging on the branch that we can't miss out, and that's hope. Now, Paul doesn't use the word hope explicitly in these verses, um, but he doesn't need to. He speaks throughout the letter of things that he hopes for and that the Christian ought to hope for. For example, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I have not already apprehended. And he says to depart and be with Christ is far better. All of those are to do with hope. These are important things for us to understand as Christians. That when we begin to disbelieve and become discontent and complain against the Lord or we just have a weak faith that isn't good at trusting him. It doesn't lay hold of him properly and embrace Christ and hold on to him. The natural fallen part of your soul, which is still in the flesh, will begin to resent God. You, you wouldn't trust him. And this anxiety and all the terrible things that can come from it will grow up within us. But when our faith is exercised, when we are trusting him, then the things we will receive are joy, peace, thanksgiving, and hope. These are wonderful things. The world wants these. The world wants these. It wants joy. That's why it sins. It thinks the sin will bring it joy. It creates hopes for itself, and the hope always disappoints it tries to emulate thanksgiving you'll hear it in the world all the time thankfulness like at thanksgiving where people who usually have no time for god or who have no living relationship with christ gather around and they thank the god of heaven for family and for nation and for protection and the abundance of this nation which is very rich and so on The world knows something about this, but I hope I'm going to show you that it's really the Christian only that really knows something about this. So, there is a faith that brings about joy, hope, and peace, and thanksgiving, that fills the Christian's life with thanksgiving. And Paul gives the ingredients here for us to know about this this morning and to exercise it in our lives. And that's really, in this passage at least, prayer and consideration, or prayer and meditation, which is just to think upon the things that God has done. That's clear in the passage. Verses um, 6 and 7 are all about prayer, and verses 8 and 9 are all about consideration. Brethren, whatever is true, noble, Whatever is just, pure, and lovely, meditate, consider these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So all of this hangs together, doesn't it? Paul says, do this, and the peace of God will guard your heart. Then he says, do this, and the God of peace will be with you, and you will have joy and thanksgiving. So there is prayer and then considering things that Paul says, but most of all, that ultimately God has said through the gospel. So, if you want this joy this morning, and if I want this joy, and we want to have the the wonderful fruit of the call in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always, how do I have that? How do you have that? I want to just put this in two ways to you this morning. First, what is joy? And then secondly, how do we pursue it? So what is it and how do we pursue it? Paul says rejoice. Well, what is joy? Well, joy is a spiritual affection or an emotion. That's what it is. It's a spiritual emotion that is joined with us in our natural emotions. And it is an expression of contentment and happiness of exaltation and being thrilled with something. In this case, God. 
Christ, the highest source and object of joy. God is joy himself. He exists in a state of perpetual and complete and utter joy. And we can have some of that joy in a fullness in our souls. It is an emotion. I know it's popular today to speak down emotions and to say that things in the Bible aren't based on emotions, that joy isn't really an emotion, it's something else, uh, and the happiness of the Christian isn't just an emotional thing. And we understand why people say that, that there's a way in which that isn't wrong at all, because what they're saying is that the world has its emotions, and human nature has its emotions, and sometimes they can't be trusted. Sometimes they're very weak, superficial, and you can't really base your trust and base how you feel about God just on what you're experiencing in your emotions. And with that, obviously, we would completely agree. If, we're, if someone thinks that it's just a mere emotion, just something that happens to men and women, it rises up for a moment and then passes away, it's not that kind of emotion. But it is an experience of an emotion. Not a mere narrow emotion, but a deep, abiding state of heart which God creates in Christ. Um, God made us as emotional beings. That, that is a gift from God. We're not, we're not to be unthankful uh, for them. They can be very bad sometimes, very unpredictable even, but that's what Christian growth is all about. Our emotions should become less and less unpredictable as we grow in Christ, and they should be more steady and so on. They're a gift from God. The, the emotion of joy tells us something about our relationship to God. Our emotion of fear and so on and anxiety, it has its own use. And God even gives us that when he wants to warn us and when he wants to tell us something's wrong. He removes certain things that are producing that joy or the spirit will just... Uh, be, be, be less uh, full in his flowing of that joy in us, and we may feel an emptiness, and that's actually a good thing too. It lets us know something's wrong between us and God, and so on. So let's not just uh, put down these emotions. To say uh, that it's not an emotion would be uh, quite wrong. We're made capable of deep emotion as men and women. And Christ experienced and experiences joy right now as an emotion. And heaven is filled with joy in a very emotional way. It's deeply spiritual, but they are experiencing this joy. And it is joy that uh, doesn't fluctuate, which is a wonderful uh, thing. It's just a constant state of perfect joy in glory. We're taught when we're very young, what is the chief end of man? I'm sure all the children know the answer to this question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and be sure of your doctrine. To, to glorify God and no matter what you feel, grit your teeth and stay close to him. No, that we were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were made to glorify him and then experience the fruit of glorifying him, which is to enjoy him forever. And we know that the world, sadly, has a very superficial idea of what joy is, and that's one of the main problems, uh, that their idea of an upbeatness and a cheerfulness that you wear on the surface, and no matter what goes on, you remain upbeat and have a spring in your step and smile at all times, uh, that is a, a superficial view of the joy that Christ actually gives and the joy that we are to have even in this world. The world portrays itself always as more happy than it actually is and it's constantly grabbing on to this upbeatness and cheerfulness and positivity but as you know it always disappoints. So we're, if that's what joy is... Um, how do I have that joy in my heart? How do you have it in your heart? Well, the Holy Spirit is the author of that joy. It's one of his fruits. The fruits of the Spirit, the children know this too. Joy, peace, long-suffering, love, gentleness, and so on. 
it is a beautiful fruit that the Spirit creates in the heart of the Christian, and it comes from the joy of Christ himself. In our union with him, our relationship to him, it produces a loving joy between us and the Lord. What a precious, valuable, invaluable thing it is. And frequently in the Bible, when the Holy Spirit is mentioned, especially in Paul's letters, he always is carrying something like peace or joy with him. And when, when Paul says, may the God of peace be with you, I think there's a special angle there that Paul's eye is on the Holy Spirit. The, the spirit of peace, he will call them, or the spirit of love, or the spirit of holiness, that he gives these titles to the Holy Spirit who hides himself as the Father and Son radiate, the Holy Spirit comes in to the soul and he's kind of hidden. He doesn't take a lot of attention for himself, but almost masking himself in a way in our souls. We see his hand, I'm speaking figuratively here, bringing out, there's joy, there's peace. Where did it come from? It comes from the peaceable, perfectly loving and calm spirit of God. And he is bringing the joy of the Father and Son into our souls. Now, I said in the prayer that the Christian believer has the Holy Spirit within them. So the source of this joy is in you. It's not something that needs to be called in from the outside, really. You call to God because there is a way in which he is outside of us and Christ is in glory and we're to look to him but the joy itself there's a way in which it doesn't come from this place far away from us it comes from the spirit of God who indwells the heart so the seat of all the affections and emotions and the seat of joy are already there and the spirit of God is there ready and able and covenanted to bring that joy when we truly need it, when we want it, when we pray for it. And there are many things we do to disrupt that provision of joy. So that's what joy is. But let me say one other characteristic about it before we deal with how to exercise that joy. Another characteristic of this joy that's really important to remember is that this is a joy primarily in redemptive things. Not temporal things of this world, but redemptive things. Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Not not simply to rejoice because of the good things God has given, but to rejoice in the Lord himself. In the knowledge of his salvation, in prayer to him, as Paul says here, in thanksgiving to him for the redemptive things that he has done in our lives. That's very important. If you're in any doubt about that, consider just before this chapter, um, the end of chapter 3, Paul uh, says um, in verse 19, The world, its end is destruction, its God is its belly. Those are physical, fleshly things like eating, but a lot more than eating. Whose glory is in their shame, and they set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform this lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Therefore, my beloved, and longed for brothers, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. And then later on he says, rejoice in the Lord. Paul, by the Spirit, does not call us to rejoice in anything that we deem good or that we happen to like, but to rejoice in the Lord. And I think when he says the Lord there, there, he's specifically thinking of Christ. doesn't always mean Christ. Sometimes it means the Father. 
But he calls the Father God in this passage several times. And I think when he says rejoice in the Lord, there's a special reference in his word to that this is all bound up in Jesus Christ. Now we are to rejoice and receive joy and receive peace and then thank God primarily for redemptive and spiritual things. If that shrunk in us, if our soul isn't doing that, and when we're trying to think of things to rejoice over and prayer points and things to say about a day like this, the Lord's Day, if you say tomorrow I enjoyed the Lord's Day because, what comes after that? Are they spiritual things, redemptive things, or merely temporal things, things that the world thinks they're thankful for towards God? Now, this is in Paul's mind. He's in Rome right now under house arrest in a rented apartment in Rome waiting to be tried because of the charges of the Jews against him and he's appealed to Caesar, a very dangerous thing for him to do. He is chained to a centurion who must make sure he doesn't escape in any way, but he's in a house. People say this is a prison epistle as though... He's in a dungeon or something. He's not. He's in a house. He's chained to a centurion. He's near Caesar's palace, he tells us. And he's in custody. He's worried about the churches. He doesn't have all the things he needs, at least for a lot of the time. So the Philippians have to send money for the payment of the rent, uh, for provisions for Paul, and so on, to sustain him. Many have turned against him. He can't see all the brothers he wants to see at all times. Just a visit from Epaphroditus fills him with joy, and he writes this letter. At other times he says, only Luke is left. All have departed from me. Send Timothy to me. Bring, bring Mark. He's useful to me, and so on. Paul isn't having an annual thanksgiving and saying to God, thank you for my food and my family and my car and my job and my life of prosperity in this nation. If that's what we are to thank God for, what can I tell my African brethren or my Chinese brethren or my Brazilian brethren? What can I tell them? If that's the source and the heart of our joy, that we thank God that we can stuff our faces, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. But a Christian is not. A Christian glories in the cross and rejoices in the Lord and says like Paul when he receives this huge financial gift from the Philippians and he's overwhelmed he says thank you for that but I don't want you to think that I'm actually thankful for the money it doesn't matter to me at all the reason I am thankful is that one of the churches loved me enough And this display of generosity, I don't focus on the money and take it and run and say, I deserve this because I'm I'm an apostle. Paul is moved not by the money. It's by the fact that the moment he considers how much they gave and how willing they were to give, he discovers that that has come from a Christian set of hearts that are so mature and deep and rooted and focused in Christ, that they are doing well in Christ. And that gives Paul joy. It's not the physical things, the temporary things. As we're told um, in verse 19, they set their mind on earthly things. Now we... We justify that. I'm sure I know men of God who who justify that too much. When people are focused, maybe I do it too. People are very focused on the temporal, the physical, the practical, uh, the serving, the hospitality, all, all these things that all have their place and are beautiful in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have their place. But sometimes people have no deep relationship with the Lord They are not rejoicing in the Lord that they know. They are not rejoicing um, 
in what he has done in redemption. They're not rejoicing because they're reading a great book on the cross and it has filled their mind with glorious things and new doors have been opened in their understanding and they're in awe of Jesus. They rejoice because their church is good, people are happy and people are serving each other practically. And they say, that's the gospel. It's not the gospel. Let us take these practical things and to use them as servants that they have their place. But that when we have nothing, Paul says, when we are abased and we have nothing and we lose the food, we lose the church building and so on and so on. May that be cause for concern and, and, and even a mourning, yes. But that's the point, isn't it? Paul can lose all that and mourn over the right things. He looks at the church in Corinth and says, this is a reason to mourn, but it doesn't steal his joy. Why? Because he's not rejoicing in that. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again to you, rejoice. So the temporal things have their place. It's not that they don't matter at all. But we can lose these temporal things. We can lose the physical things. And the essence of the church is not just to be up and doing. A church that's not up and doing is obviously very unhealthy and so on. But that is not the essence of the church. The essence of the church is hearing the word of God, having Christ open before us, peering into his glory and his attributes and all that he's done, and praying to God with thanksgiving and supplication in Christ Jesus and entering into the heavenly things and rejoicing in them. Those are the things we are to rejoice in. And Paul rejoices greatly in these things himself. And that's what comes out in this letter. Now, I want to turn to how we are to have this joy, how we are to exercise it and pursue it. If there was a title, the sermon would be called The Pursuit of Joy. I want to deal with that, and I'm looking at the clock here, and the material I want to give you, I can't fit into this one service, so I'm going to do the rest of it this evening. I don't want to cut anything out because I'm burdened for myself and you, and I believe we are to receive this. So I'm going to say a few things. I have eight ways that we are to pursue this joy, things we are to be thankful for, and I'm probably only going to give you two or three right now, and we'll do the rest this evening. Now, when he says rejoice in the Lord, that joy is a spiritual affection, a precious thing from God, that it's not based on temporary things and that it's rooted in the heavenly things of Christ. He tells us in verse 6, don't be anxious then, but pray and supplicate and fill your prayer with thanksgiving and let your requests be made known to God so that you receive the peace of God. He tells us to pray. But then in verse 8, he tells us how to access this joy and for it to fill up so that it completely fills our soul at any given moment. And what is it that does that? How do you do that? He tells you, brothers, whatever is true, noble, just or right, pure, lovely, anything of a good report, any virtue, anything praiseworthy, consider these things. The NESB says, dwell on these things. Consider, meditate on these things. Now, you know the word Paul uses in the Greek here. It's the word logic. Be logical about these things. That doesn't mean that it just makes sense. In Paul's world, that word he uses that comes from the word logic is an accounting word. I don't know if any of you know accountants. They're not always the most joyful people. But he, he takes this word from the world of accounting often. This word should be precious to you because Abraham believed God. And Paul says it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
That's the word Paul took from that world, and he uses it all the time for the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. I'm sure you've heard sermons on that, that it's credited to your account, that Christ's righteous life and death and atonement and substitution is credited like an accountant from the debt column to the paid column so that when someone looks at your ledger, it's all paid. Everything that is needed is there. He even calls it the righteousness of God. That the Christian, legally, is as righteous as God. Because God's righteousness has been credited to them. What a glorious gift. Does that make you rejoice? But he uses that word here, not just for what God has done to credit. He says, you do that. With the noble, virtuous, lovely, just, praiseworthy things. Good things of redemption. Whatever is good, he says, you're anxious. Stop focusing on the difficulties all the time. Focus on these things. And he says to make a logical account of it all. What God has done in redemption. Have it all laid out before you and meditate on these things and the God of peace will be with you. So that's what we're called to do. That has meat on it. That has substance. I'm sure you've met professing Christians or maybe true Christians and they go around and God's given them a very natural disposition just to be light-hearted and they're bobbing around all, all of the time. And you say they're so happy, they're so joyful. And a lot of the time it has hardly any substance at all. There is no logical account. Paul uses a word in this uh, verse 8 when he says these, uh, whatever is noble. And that's the word for a kind of grave or gravitas, something of weight. Whatever is noble. Uh, he tells Timothy an elder and a deacon should be grave. They should be noble, dignified. They should have some weight to them in their character. No elder, no pastor, no deacon should be the fool in the crowd and the joker and the comic and the clown. They are to have this nobility. This is not some false stand-up straight and fake nobility. We're not talking about that. You know what I mean. There are brothers here who are pastors and some of them sometimes can say something that is joyous or even funny, but they have a dignity. They're always representing Christ. And Christ is a serious uh, person. And his joy has a weight to it too. And Paul says here, whatever is noble, grave, and of weight, meditate on that. And I'm sure God's gifted some people with a natural disposition to be kind of lighthearted and everything's okay all the time. You could tell them that the Philistines are at the gates and they say, praise God. God is good. Now, I'm not, if, if that comes from the joy I'm speaking about, that's a good thing. But you know what I mean. There are some people, um, it just doesn't matter what's going on. They find a superficial way of saying, but it's all okay. God, God's not angry. God's not judging us and so on. And you may know other people that don't have that outward disposition all of the time. And you say, well, that, that person seem, doesn't seem to have a lot of joy, or that person can be very serious sometimes. That doesn't mean they're not joyful. Spend a few weeks as a disciple of Christ in the New Testament, and you'll realize straight away that joy does not always express itself that way, that it has a gravitas to it. Now, we are to make an account of all of this. And Paul says, meditate substantially on these things, and you will have joy, you will have peace and so on. Let me give a couple to you, and we'll finish uh, the rest tonight. These all pretty much begin with rejoice in something. Rejoice in something. Have thanksgiving for something. Rejoice, I'll give you two. Rejoice in Christ. Now you may say, well, I know that answer, and I was expecting you to say I'm supposed to rejoice in Christ. But Let's seriously think about this for a second. I'm not starting with the Father. 
And I think there's a good reason for that, that you need to come to God, you need to come to the Father at all times via Christ. That's not only true at the beginning of the Christian life, but you can find yourself quite lost as a Christian who loves God. And anxieties come in, you've made a few decisions, life's a bit messy right now, and there's all these things going on. And you're saying, my Father in heaven, my Father in heaven. And you're looking for it, you're trying to take some comfort. And I could say to you, you're adopted in the Father. And you say, right, I should be joyful about that. But nothing seems to be coming through. It needs to come through Christ. He is always the way and the truth and the life. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he's speaking about Christ. When he says in verse 7, the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your minds and hearts. It says that is through Christ Jesus. We need that. Paul needed it. Paul mastered this. And he's not superhuman. He's just like me and you. He honestly is. He has the same sin problems you and I do. But he did master this, and that makes him quite unlike most of us in this generation. In this letter alone, I I didn't have time to count it properly, but I think there are about 80 references to Christ in this short letter. This is someone who is very focused on one person. You know the way he speaks about Christ. Is there anyone whoever spoke like about Christ in this way, maybe John Bunyan, maybe Samuel Rutherford, but the way he speaks about him, how well he knows him, he's everything to this man. And that's why we're free and we're in church this morning with, with no danger of being arrested, but Paul's in house custody in Rome with the possibility of being executed by the most powerful man in the world. And Paul is filled with joy and he's the one encouraging us. If you get inside Christ, that overpowers everything. Bond servants of Jesus Christ, he says. I'm looking to the day of Jesus Christ, he says. Being filled filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. My chains are in Christ. Some preach Christ from envy. I have the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Your rejoicing for me will be more abundant in Jesus Christ if I come to you again. It has been granted to me on behalf of Christ to believe in him, but not only, but to suffer for him. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who humbled himself, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He says again, I'm looking unto the day of Jesus Christ. I trust in the Lord Jesus that I can send Timothy to you shortly. He can't even instruct Timothy to visit the church without mentioning that it's only if Jesus says so that Timothy will get to Philippi. I trust in the Lord that I myself may also come shortly. We are the circumcision who rejoice in Christ Jesus. I've counted all things in my life lost for Christ, that I might obtain the knowledge of Christ, that I may gain Christ with the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, that I may lay hold of Christ, that I may receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. I look with my citizenship to the Savior who is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God will give his people all things that they need according to his riches in glory, but only in Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul can be in an apartment attached to Caesar's palace in the Roman Empire, chained to a centurion, and the centurion can't believe what he's hearing from this man. This is the happiest man in Rome, and it's all because of Jesus Christ. 
Rejoice, Christian. I say again to you, rejoice. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. You're not focusing on him. I'm not focusing on him. Satan is winning. He distracts us frequently. Focus on Christ. He's not just a subject or a concept. He's a real living and fleshed person who truly loves his people. How can you rejoice in his work, in his death, in his atonement for you, in his redemption and mercy, that when you have fallen into sin or even a period of sin or being backslidden for a year, that when that life springs up again in you, in the Lord, that when you turn to him and you look at him as Peter did and you you say, forgive me, Lord, I have failed you, he cleanses you to be whiter than the snow. How can we not rejoice if he does that? Rejoicing in him and his work, in his resurrection, and its life-giving power that at the Father's right hand he is exceedingly joyful and his lips are full of grace with a crown of glory on his head and he promises to give that resurrection joy to us to resurrect our souls frequently. To know, as Paul says in this letter, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There you go. There is the road to joy. To consider these things. You can't be joyful if your gospel is so minuscule that you say he was raised from the dead and he died for sinners. Now on to the things I need to do. Take it from Paul. I count it all as dispensable and expendable. I'm willing to cut off anything. As he was in the Mediterranean Sea and they didn't know what to do, that the ship would sink. And Paul says, make the ship lighter and start throwing things into the sea so that we'll be saved. Well, Paul did that spiritually. I counted it all, the tribe of Benjamin, my circumcision, all the things that I used to rejoice in that I thought made me a godly man, but I was a stinking, condemned Jewish rabbi. I was a condemned man, but Christ came and made me whiter than the snow. And I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of him, that I may gain him and that I may know his resurrection and its power and know the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm giving you deep Christianity here. These are the things we are to excel in and grow in, that we discover that one of the ways to be closest to Christ and to have true joy is to know and experience the power of his resurrection in our lives and to know something of what it's like to truly suffer like he did. Because if we love him and we want this joy, we will suffer. One of the greatest gifts God can give us is to turn us aside and bring us into the theater of Christ's sufferings and for us to taste some of it ourselves. To be like him. To be rejected. To be isolated to be called things, even by the visible church, to be called things because we are like Christ. We are too gracious or we are too rebuking or we we spend too much time thinking about heavenly things or we spend too much time with our nose uh, dug into a book and we're not doing enough practical things and whatever it is, Paul Paul was called all of that. The Corinthian church They pulled Paul to pieces. But he discovered, after it was so hard, he discovered, now I know something more about my Lord. 
that he is Christ and I am Christian. And to be Christian and to have the spirit of Christ means that sometimes people will pull us apart. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death. Joy comes from focusing on Christ in his work in these things and in his beauty that after we have entered the Christian life, after we've entered a time of the theater of Christ's sufferings, there are always other times that God gives us, periods like Paul had, where we can turn and focus on his beauty, the things that that beam from him in beautiful, glorious light, his attributes, who he is as a person, all the parts of his character that he expresses to us. One of the Psalms says, My heart indicting is good matter in a song. My heart bubbles up with a consideration of the king. You are fairer than the sons of men. Your lips are full of grace. Therefore God hath bestowed on you, above all others, a glory and a kingdom. And God's light shines from your face. Our husband that we look at him and we rejoice in him. You are beautiful. You are mine. I walk with you. You take me aside in an enclosed garden. You speak to me. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His hair and his lips and his eyes like doves. He is altogether lovely. These are the things of joy. So as I've given you Christ there, you need to read the word. You need to order in a few good books, even if they're just small Puritan paperbacks, whatever they are. And let them be about Christ. Not about witnessing in the workplace. That is its place. Not about being the next great husband and so on. Christ. Come alongside someone like Paul. Who knows all about him. And go along with that person as you read. And let that person unveil to you. All of the things you haven't considered yet about him. If we look upon him in this way, we will not be anxious. We will rejoice. And when everyone else is having thanksgiving, and all that they can present on the altar of God is, you've given me prosperity and luxury and family. Let your sacrifice always be. You have given me Jesus Christ. We'll see the rest of these tonight, God willing. Now let's stand for a moment and pray. Let us pray. Everlasting God, we bless you.